Let's open our Bibles together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 19 this morning. I love the sound of pages turning. It just I have nightmares that I'm in the pulpit somewhere and pages just keep turning and I can never stop start, you know, I just I grow old. It's like that commercial where the guy promises he'll be back and then he comes back, you know. I just grow old in the pulpit waiting for people to find Luke chapter six. Let me give you a clue. Bring no, this is helpful. I used to do this when I was a young Christian. Bring the same Bible to church next week and put a marker there because we're going to still be in Luke chapter 6 next week, right? Oh, man, I tell you, some things are right under your nose. Hey, I have trouble finding the Old Testament stuff, believe me. I, I was never in Sunday school. Can I share with you for a minute before we get into our study? I was, def- I was uh, never taken to Protestant Sunday school, so I, don't, I, I didn't even know what the Old Testament was, you know, and so... I still use my table of contents sometimes in the old, especially the minor prophets. Man, those guys are mixed up. But anyway, back into our mode here. Luke chapter 6 is our text, beginning in verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases." as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we are excited in anticipation of what you might say to us as a group, Lord, but especially individually, personally. We believe you when you say that your Scripture is alive and powerful and that it's able to discern between our soul and our spirit and to talk to us as if you were right here in the room, Lord, speaking to us directly. And so we're in in, in a very excited way, Lord, waiting to hear what you have to say. We know that you won't disappoint us, Lord, because you're a great and glorious God and Savior. And so we wait upon your voice, Lord. We have ears to hear what your spirit will say to us as a church and as Christians. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, they've not given their life to you, they can't honestly say that they're in love with you more than anything and anyone else. I pray that your spirit would reveal Jesus to them in his risen glory. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Jesus took his disciples on their first mountain retreat. I see that they were with him on the mountain when I read in verse 17, he came down with them, and so they were with him there on the mountain. It was unlike our modern, somewhat cushy Christian retreats. 
There wasn't a syllabus or a schedule. There was no guest speaker, no special guest worship artist. There was no, uh, no prepared meals and no lodging. This isn't the kind of retreat you would sign up for today. But in those days, it was as good as it gets. Jesus spent all night in prayer to God. The next day, His prayer yielded the program for reaching the multitudes throughout the centuries. He would entrust the ministry of the gospel to 12 men who would go out and make disciples of more men and women who would then do the same generation after generation. On the surface, it's not a very stable plan. You're even told that one of his men became a traitor. Someone once said that Christianity is always only one generation away from extinction. Well, that's true if you only look on the surface at the failings and frailties of the followers of Jesus. There is something below the surface, something you can see in the actions of Jesus all that night of prayer and the next day when it says power went out from Him. The two things you see below the surface are these. First, Jesus praying all night for His disciples is a picture of His praying all the time for you. After His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension, Jesus is in heaven. He's at the Father's right hand where He is described as constantly praying for you. Jesus still prays for us, and it's from a much greater vantage point, a much higher vantage point than this mountain. And then second, you'll notice that when Jesus and His newly appointed apostles came down, only the Lord ministered to the multitudes. Jesus was in the midst of His ministers doing all the ministry. Jesus promised that after His ascension into heaven, He'd be in our midst whenever we gather together. So this is a second picture. The Lord in the midst of us is the power for ministry. Jesus praying all night on the mountain reminds you He is praying all the time from a greater mount, and though He is in heaven, He promised to be in our midst with power sufficient for our task. Christianity is Christ, and therefore it is never in danger of extinction. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus is still on the mount praying for you. And number two, Jesus is still in your midst powering you. Let's take a look, uh, first of all, in verses 12 through 16. Jesus is still on the mount praying for you. The Bible declares, this is from the book of Hebrews chapter 7, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. And so we're right to say that Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for us as a church as well. It's one reason that the church cannot and will not ultimately fail and why the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The marvelous mountain retreat in our text sets the stage for all subsequent church history. Jesus was directed by His Father to choose 12 men as apostles from the greater number of disciples. Let's watch it unfold. Verse 12 again, now it came to pass in those days that He went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. You've heard it said, if Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to be praying? I understand the sentiment. 
But I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the words Jesus needed to pray. I think it better to see Jesus as wanting to pray, as loving to pray, as living for prayer. You know, Jesus, before He was sent to earth, He was eternally with the Father and the Spirit in heaven. They enjoyed unbroken fellowship. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have no need of anything outside of themselves. They they are complete. They, They share a beautiful relationship. And so, if anything, Jesus on earth desired to pray, longed for, looked forward to those moments when He could break from His ministry that He was called to so that He could just spend time with His Father. If He needed to do anything, it was, to, it was His ministry. It was, it was the, to be about the work that the Father had called Him to, but He wanted to pray. It's not dissimilar to your relationship if you're in love with your husband or your wife, and there are times when you are separated and you long to talk with them on the telephone or to communicate with them somehow, maybe, you know, our modern generation through email or instant messaging or whatever it would be, but then to be together again so that you can be in that face-to-face relationship. God forbid that you would say, oh, I need to call my wife. And see, that's what we do sometimes we, we, when we talk about Jesus in that way. Oh, I, I need to spend time with the Father. I'm having such a good time here on the mountain with these bozos. You know, the, I, I need, to, need to break from you guys for a minute and talk to my Father. I know it's a drag, you know. See, it, it's, it's a perspective thing. If you are not careful, you allow very subtle errors of perspective to creep into your thinking. Instead of being a source of joy, Prayer is seen as some awful struggle that we have to convince you is necessary. When I was a young Christian, I was privileged to be at a meeting. It was one of the Christian organizations, a parachurch organization, wanted to hold a seminar to encourage Christians to pray. And that sounds like a good thing, and it's a good thing to encourage Christians to pray. I'm not down on that. And they wanted to have this seminar, and and they were going to take Christians through different steps to get them praying because Christians don't pray enough. And uh, uh, my pastor, uh, f- former pastor of mine who I love, Don McClure, was there. He was at this meeting. And, and uh, so they went around the room after they had presented their little program. They wanted everybody's opinion on, on you know, their ideas and their program. And everybody, oh, man, this is great. Yeah, nobody in my church prays. This will be fantastic, wonderful. And they got to Don, and Don said, well, I'd, I'd just soon not tell you what I think. <laughs> oh, man. I don't think he was baiting them. He was sincere. He says, I just, just, I'll pass. Just go to the next guy. Oh, no, no, Pastor Don, we're very interested in what you have to say. Really? Just, I'm okay. And they finally forced Don, you know, and, and, and so he sat there for a minute and he took a deep breath and he goes, well, he goes, the whole thing here makes it seem like uh, prostitution to me. Uh, come again? What? Well, you have to like really whip people up into a frenzy and, and convince them that prayer is a good thing and, and that, you know, w- wouldn't your life be better and wouldn't you be a better Christian? And, and, you know, it's kind of baiting them and drawing them into prayer. Shouldn't you just want to pray because you love Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for you? And I thought, oh, man, am I glad I didn't say anything. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I was feeling in my heart. And, and that's exactly true. And so I understand the sentiment. Yeah, yeah, you need to pray more and and all of that. But doesn't it make more sense that you should want to pray more? 
And it does if you're in love with the you, you want to talk to people that you love or at least be with them. Maybe not constant communication, but be there and, and have a relationship with them. And so this is how we want to see Jesus. This was not a burden for him to spend all night in prayer. He would rather talk to his father than sleep. We can't say for sure what the disciples were doing all night on the mountain. We automatically assume boneheads that they were, that they were falling asleep. Peter might have went fishing in a stream. You know, those kinds of, we have those kinds of things. I assume they did what was, you know, uh, natural to them in their own personalities. If you go with 12 guys somewhere, they're going to do different things. Some are going to be fishing. Some are going to be sleeping. I'd be drinking coffee. Whatever turns you on. But some of them, I bet, were praying. The emphasis, though, is on what Jesus did for His disciples that night, not what they ought to have done for Him. And so in verse 13, and when it was day, He called His disciples to Himself, and from them He chose 12, whom He also named apostles. A larger group of disciples was present on the mountain. A disciple is a learner. That's what it means. In those days, when you were a disciple, you literally followed your teacher around. You lived with him. From this larger group, Jesus chose 12 apostles. An apostle is a messenger sent out with a special commission. The sense you get from reading through the New Testament is that the original 12 apostles had a unique place and purpose. For example, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the 11 remaining apostles realized that they must replace Judas, the traitor who had by that time hung himself. They chose Matthias. Some people think they were wrong to do this. But afterwards, in the book of Acts, they are referred to as the 12. And so the 11 apostles plus Matthias reconstituted this group, the 12. Why was it important there be the 12 unique apostles? 12 was an important number, a symbolic number. The nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes. When Jesus chose 12 apostles, He was letting us know that He was establishing something new. He was establishing a new nation, a spiritual nation, the true people of God. God was not forgetting His unconditional promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, but something greater was beginning. Jesus was establishing His church, which would consist of both Jews and Gentiles. And then we have them listed in beginning in verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon called the zealot, Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. An unlikely group of ministers. The first name recorded was Simon, whom Jesus also called Peter. He's also referred to in Scripture as Cephas. Peter is the Greek equivalent of the Aramaic Cephas, a, mean, a word excuse me, meaning stone or rock. He was a fisherman for whom Jesus had provided a miraculous catch of fish, and then Jesus called him to be a follower. He became one of the three in Jesus' core group among the disciples. Peter, James, and John form a kind of closer uh, alliance with Jesus than some of the others. And, and it, just in passing, I might mention that while we are never to show favoritism as Christians, we are to be uh, seeing everyone as equal, 
there are times when certain people have greater privileges because of relationship, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and so, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, that's not fair because you chose that person and you have a closer relationship with that person. Well, okay, so did Jesus. There's no getting around it that Jesus had Peter, James, and John. They were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration, with him many other times when the other apostles were left behind. And it would just... They, they, had that, they shared that privilege, Jesus, of course, not showing favoritism, just privilege. Andrew was Peter's brother and also a fisherman. Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist and had accepted John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He left John and followed Jesus and then brought his brother to the Lord. How beautiful that example is of, of getting saved believing that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and then sharing that with your immediate family. James and John had also been fishermen, and incidentally, they were Peter and Andrew's business partners. Along with Peter, the three of them became that inner circle. James would become the first martyr for the Christian faith. Now, I don't know how the other apostles felt, but about that time, I'd be happy that I wasn't part of the inner circle. About the time that I realized that I was that the you know that that privilege carried a, the responsibility of being martyred for your faith. John would write the Gospel of John, the letters of First, Second, and Third John, and he would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. These two men, James and John, may have been distant cousins of Jesus, because at one point they requested special places in Christ's kingdom. If there is going to be uh, privilege, they thought, well, maybe we could sit at your right hand and at your left. They were uh, short-sighted and short-tempered and judgmental. Uh, they may have been Irish, I guess, is what the way we would look at it. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not, but I'm kidding in a, in a kind of a serious way. Anyway, uh, we have kind of an ongoing thing in our family between the, the Italians and the Irish, you know, it's, it's our own thing. Uh, anyway, uh, there was a time when these guys, the, the Samaritan village did not show hospitality to Jesus. And so James and John said, hey, hey, Lord, we've got an idea. Let's call fire down from heaven and burn these people out. Let's not and say we did, guys. That's, you're not really getting the message right now, you know. John wrote about Philip. The next day Jesus decided uh, to leave for Galilee, he wrote and said, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip then brought Bartholomew, who we believe is also called Nathaniel. And so when you read uh, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, this was the same person with two different names. Matthew was known as Levi. He had been a tax collector who at Jesus' call had given up everything in order to follow him. And then he invited all of his tax collector buddies to meet Jesus at a banquet. He would later write the Gospel of Matthew. Thomas, unfortunately, always remembered as doubting Thomas because he doubted Jesus' resurrection. Thomas wasn't there at the first Sunday night service after Jesus rose from the dead. He missed Sunday night. And most ministers grab that to tell you, don't miss Sunday evening service. But... Uh, you take that for yourself. But he wasn't there for whatever reason. But he was there the following week, and Jesus revealed himself. And Thomas said, I don't need to put my hands on the nail-printed hole anymore. I, I believe, Lord. And he called him Lord and God. 
Uh, James called the son of Alphaeus to differentiate him from James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Simon the Zealot, uh, he's called this because either he was involved in the movement of zealots, a kind of subversive Jewish group against Rome, or he just had a zeal for serving God. There's some discussion about that among scholars because we're not sure that the zealots really existed as a group at this time. And so, uh, either way, he had a zeal for the Lord, whether it turned into, whether it was for sub- subversive activity prior to knowing Jesus or not, we're just not sure. And then there was Judas Iscariot. The name Iscariot is probably a compound word meaning the man from Kerioth. Thus, Judas' hometown was, was Kerioth in southern Judea, and uh, he was the only one of the 12 then who was not from Galilee. To use our terms, these men were ordained as the first ministers. Now, that's pretty exciting because Jesus selected only ordinary men with a mixture of backgrounds and personalities to be His disciples. He did not choose them to be His apostles because of their faith, because it often faltered. He did not choose them because of their talents and abilities. No one stood out as having any unusual talent or ability. They represented a wide range of backgrounds and life experiences, and they may have had no more leadership potential than those who were not chosen. In other words, Jesus didn't do a demographic study. He didn't do a psychological profile. He didn't ask them key questions. He didn't look at their resume. He didn't do any of the things that you and I would do if we were going to choose somebody to do almost anything. And yet, for the most important work arguably, for which 12 men had ever been chosen before in the history of the world, Jesus simply prayed all night and trusted His Father's decision. And we look at these guys now in retrospect, see, in retrospect, having thousands, a couple of thousand years of history, and we think, man, whoa, Peter, way to go. But if you had come down from that mountain with those 12 guys and said, Here's the team, the dream team of apostles. I can still hear the Pharisees laughing. These are the last guys on earth that you would entrust ministry to. Ignorant fishermen, despised tax collectors, some guy from Kerioth, a guy who can't figure out if his name is Nathaniel or Bartholomew. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. Crazy. They were laughable as a group of ministers the first Calvary Chapel pastors. (laughs) You know, anyway, it might seem strange that Jesus would spend an entire night in prayer to pick this group and then end up choosing Judas. Did Jesus make a mistake? No. Did God make a mistake? No. The plan had been set in motion from the beginning of time, and this was part of that plan would eventually come to its final conclusion in Judas' betrayal of Jesus and his own suicide. The betrayal fulfilled prophecy and helped to bring Jesus to the cross. No mistake about it. That is not to say Judas was without his own free will to choose. Human beings have free will. They are held responsible for their choices, and Judas is really an example of this. He was in no way coerced to betray the Lord. His betrayal was his own willful, responsible choice. God knew for sure that Judas would freely choose to betray Jesus. You know, a lot of people, they just fuse out in these areas of Scripture. 
How can you, how can God be sovereign and man have free will and responsibility? I've told you for years, you cannot and therefore will not ever resolve that dilemma in your puny lifetime. No one has for centuries, no one will, and the best you can do, the best you can do, which is really bad, is fall off on one side or the other and say, well, I don't understand it, therefore it can't be true, so I'm going to put all my eggs in the basket of God's sovereignty. So I guess God chose Judas to go to hell because that makes God sovereign without any free will. Okay, I'm for that. Eh, wrong. Sorry, that makes God a monster, and that's one thing I know He's not. Or you come out on the other side and say Judas was free and everybody's free, and God is wringing His hands in heaven thinking, what's going to happen? <laughs> I've got this prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. Can you help me out here? God is sovereign. Man is free. We cannot understand that. It shouldn't surprise you that you can't understand that. But the Bible teaches both simultaneously, and you must believe both. There are many lessons we might draw from Jesus choosing Jude. You know, libraries of books have been written about this subject of sovereignty and free will. All the time, there are some great lessons for our spirit to be learned if we'll just take it at face value. For example, and this is one of many examples, if Jesus had a traitor in His midst, so might we from time to time, or at least a person who turns his back on the Lord, falls away from the Lord after maybe even years of serving the Lord faithfully. Were we wrong to ordain that person or to see that person raised up? Did God make a mistake? Well, no, of course not. While we may not be able to fully understand and explain it, God remains in complete control. Jesus, of course, you know, never wrote any books. He never had a church growth conference. He left no organizational charts for us to follow. As far as I know, none of the Dead Sea Scrolls has a PowerPoint on organizational <laughs> flow. This is how, you know, the pastor's over here. He's the triangle, and out from him emanate all these. You know, it, it's amazing, some of this stuff. I can't, I, I must be just no dimensional because I can never follow a flow chart anyway. But uh, I've seen them for churches and leadership and all that. Jesus didn't have any of that kind of stuff. His only one and only method for founding and building up his church was the men he called to follow him. These men were his organization. They were plan A, and there was no plan B, and that's why I like to call them plan E for eternity. This was God's plan from eternity for eternity for preaching the gospel. No wonder he spent an extended period of time in prayer before choosing them. And what a contrast to the way Christians operate so much of the time. We make decisions and then we ask God to bless them. We look for men or even women who have skill and talent and ability in a certain area. And, and we say, well, you're, you're skilled. You have talent in this area. You, you're a natural leader. You've taken the psychological exams and we see that you're the top of the crop here. You make the decision. Oh, thank you very much, and this is what I think we should do. Let's open in prayer. Father, bless our time. Okay, let's get on with it. And, and you know, I've been to meetings, and I've, I've conducted meetings. I'm, not, I'm in this sometimes, where you pray for three minutes and you talk for three hours. 
And I think if we reverse the ratio sometimes, we'd be better off. You'd get up thinking everything's great. We don't need to make any decisions because the Lord is in our midst and let's let him take care of it. And so Jesus, a fantastic example for us to follow. How much better the decisions would be and how much more effective the work and healthy the church is if we would pray first, and I mean really pray, and then act. Jesus still prays for his church, only he's doing it from heaven. Regardless our commitment to prayer, we can be confident he is praying for us. And then number two, Jesus is still in your midst, powering you, verses 17 through 19. If you had just been ordained, you'd be a zealot to get busy for God. You'd be Gene, who is called the zealot. I mean, you'd be, wow, Lord, thank you so much. Coming down from the mountain, there's the multitude of people. You'd say, okay, Lord, set me loose. Jesus instead provided another illustration. As far as the record here goes, ministry took place because Jesus was in the midst of the 12 and his other disciples. He did all the teaching, and he did all the touching that was done that day. Later, the apostles would participate in more direct ways. They would teach and touch. But the lesson was burned into their minds. Jesus in the midst of us is the key to releasing God's power into needy hearts and lives. It's not us that God needs. It's just us being channels so that Jesus can be revealed. And so verses 17 through 19 tell the story of that day. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Jesus stood with them, that is, with his apostles, and with a crowd of his disciples. Today we would say that he is in the midst of the church leaders and the congregation. In fact, Jesus described himself just that way in the book of the Revelation. He described himself as walking in the midst of his church on earth. People flocked to Jesus. We spend too much time trying to figure out how to get people to flock to church. And we usually just end up getting other believers to change churches because they like some new program that we have or some, something new that we're doing. I guess all I'm saying is we should just concentrate more on our personal walk with Jesus Christ. We've decided that people are hungering and thirsting after comfort. And so we're making life as comfortable as possible for them. But you can be very comfortable. I'm comfortable today. I like the new air conditioning. The seats are cushy. Everything's great. But your physical comfort can't do anything for what's going on in your heart. You need to hear from Jesus. And so we, as a congregation, we need to be representing Jesus as in our midst. And then it doesn't really matter where you are, how comfortable or uncomfortable you are. I've been overseas in situations where I thought I was going to die. I'm going to die any minute here. If I don't get a drink of water, I'm going to die. Sweat is just coming off of you. You're in the Philippines. You're in Honduras. You're just, Lord, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right here without saying goodbye to my wife and children. All right, just kill me now. (laughs) People flocking 
to see Jesus, not us or, or what we're doing, but just to see Jesus and to have the Word taught to them. And so we want to concentrate on exalting Jesus. He must be present in our midst. The people came for two reasons. It says they came to hear Him, and it says they came to be healed of both diseases and demons. People still come for those same two reasons. We must be about the business of teaching and touching if they are to hear and be healed. And so as far as teaching, people hear Jesus when His Word is taught. We can modernize. We can be contemporary. We can utilize current events and the latest technology, and we should to a certain extent, but we must always center our meetings around the Bible. This is getting tougher and tougher in the church age in which we live because we're, we're, again, instead of being about Jesus, we're, we're about drawing people in, and so we have all the bells and whistles, all the technology going on, all this stuff. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. I'll say a, a word about that in a minute. But oftentimes we lose the teaching of the Word of God. We've decided that teaching God's Word in a clear, simple way is too offensive. It's something that will turn people off, and we don't want to do that. Well, well I'll give you an example. Uh, a Calvary pastor I know, a friend of his who's a minister in a denomination, He's switching over, trying to establish a Calvary somewhere. He went to his denominational regional meeting this past year, and they had a, a, a role-playing seminar where you have to share Jesus without using the words sin, cross, or blood. Those are bad words that you don't want to ever say to anybody because they might offend people. And so, you, you, you know, you have to figure out how you can say that Jesus died for your sins on the cross when He shed His blood without saying it that way. He flunked out the first 10 seconds. And, and so, uh, I think He said something like, this is sinful. But, uh, you know, but anyway, so, so that's what it comes to sometimes. So, we want to be careful. On the other hand, you know, sometimes we do need to modernize, and I'm not talking about so much the equipment as it is our own understanding. I don't know when it was, but in the last few days, I've realized that I've gotten old. I still, of course, young at heart, super attractive, but, <laughs> but you know, the gray hair is coming. People are asking me if I'm going to do the Grecian formula. No. Uh, I had one of the brothers after first service said, why don't you just shave your head like I did? I said, because well, I still have hair. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, things like that. So, but I'm old. I'm getting old. Now, what does that mean? Things that I think are contemporary were contemporary once. And so a lot of times something will happen. I'll think, oh, I don't, that's lame, you know. We don't want to do that. Well, but see, I'm, I'm like 50 years old now, and, and, and I don't even know what's happening half the time. Let me cut to the end. I know of too many churches. No, seriously, I know of too many churches that die out because you take this same group of people that, is, that once was contemporary but now is, you know, watching that 70s show or something like that, and they just slowly die out as they die because they're still doing what they did when they were contemporary, 
They don't want to bring anything new in. They don't like the new music. They don't like the way it's sung. They, they don't like the new technology. They don't like the new scheduling. This is the way we do things. I don't want our church to die, not for my own personal benefit, but for, for the Lord. I mean, you want your church to be vital and alive. And so we're looking to, well, what's really happening? And, and so when you come here, if you come here, and if you do, and you will sometime, and you probably do already, and you think, man, this is kind of weird. I don't think this is church. You're old. <laughs> I feel like that sometimes too, and I think this is exciting, this is neat, because we want another generation to come up behind us. If they don't come up behind us, they'll go out from us and they'll start their own work, which there's nothing wrong with that, I guess, but then we'll just be a, a little old bless-me club of people getting together and evangelizing one another. And... and uh, There'll be nothing fresh and alive and powerful. And so we want, of course, there has to be a balance. We, we're not going to bring everything in, but we're not going to keep everything out for the sake of the way it's always been done. And so we want to be open to what the Lord's doing. Now, back as far as teaching, I don't know any better way to teach except to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book. It gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity while you're listening, to speak to your heart as He empowers God's living Word to discern between your soul and your spirit in a way that no living man can do. You know, you can go to therapy your whole life. Psychologists, psychiatrists, doesn't matter how much, you know, schooling they have or how many drugs they've pumped into your system. They can't discern between your soul and your spirit. They don't even know if there's a difference between the soul and the spirit. They don't even know if you have a soul. Some of them don't even know if you have a spirit. But God can discern in the innermost part of your heart and mind, and He can speak to you there. It scares you sometimes, doesn't it, when you feel like you've been spoken to by God? You almost don't know how to tell anybody. I was at church today, and God spoke to me. Oh, man, you need drugs. You're hearing voices. But you know what I'm talking about. I've had God speak to me, not audibly, Although if he wanted to, well, he knew I'd die if he spoke to me audibly. I'd just have a heart attack. But God speaks to you. I've had people over the years, and it's not me, of course. We all know that because it happens with other ministers as well. People come up and say, you were talking to me this morning. The message was for me. And then I'll say, well, what part of the message ministered to you? And it's something I didn't even say. It's a scripture I didn't even read. Like this morning, they'll come up and they'll say, man, when... That thing about Elijah was so powerful, it really set things in motion in my heart. Right. Right. I take the credit. I take all the credit I can. But it's the Holy Spirit, and so we want to teach God's Word because, you know, people, they, they might not know it. They might initially come because they, you know, hey, this is happening or, you know, the worship or whatever. But people still come because they, they need to hear from God. They need to hear God's voice speaking to them. And as far as touching, we're always immediately balking at any talk about healing. We don't see Jesus healing 100% of the time in our midst. In fact, we may not see Him healing at all. Instead, there are more and more cases of cancer, more and more instances of disease, deeper and deeper cases of depression. The first thing I would suggest is that we have a very limited view of the world. 
When Pastor Dan Finfrock was here a few weeks ago, he told you about some amazing miracles of healing and deliverance from demons that are taking place elsewhere in the much bigger world around us. Yes, Hanford is the center of the universe. (laughs) I think of that all the time when I'm waiting for the trains to go by. This is the modern world that everybody desires to live in. The double. Have you noticed now they have two tracks? I thought it was going to be faster having two tracks. Oh, no. Now one of the trains has to slow down in front of you while the other one goes by. Do you know how long it takes a train to get up to speed? A long time. <laughs> and so there's a bigger world where things are happening. More to the point, as you read on in the New Testament, healing continues and it continues today. But you also encounter many faithful saints who were not physically healed. Men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, and especially Paul, from them you learn a deeper truth regarding healing. You learn that God's supernatural power to sustain you by His grace is sufficient for you to suffer with joy and for His glory. Power still goes out from Jesus, but it is the power of patient endurance should He choose to not heal you of your physical infirmity. You are blessed instead to share in the fellowship of His sufferings and to give a testimony of faithful abiding. You are empowered to live not under your circumstances, but above them. One additional thought, when Jesus was on the earth, He was offering to establish God's literal physical kingdom. One of the characteristics of the kingdom of God on earth is healing and health. The Jews rejected His offer. They rejected the kingdom of God on earth. Its establishment has been postponed until Jesus returns in His second coming. We are living in the church age, not the kingdom age. And though healing continues, healing is not the characteristic of the church age. Does God heal? Yes. Can He heal? Absolutely. Does He always heal? No. And that's why when you get into living here and now, when you read the New Testament, there's a lot of talk about your suffering. If healing was immediate, there'd be a lot of talk about your immediate healing, but there's not. There's a lot of talk like in the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. There's a a lot of things like Paul praying that his uh, thorn in the flesh would be removed from him, but then Jesus saying, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, glory, amen, right on, sweet. This, then, is how we are to touch people, by putting them in touch with the power of Jesus to heal them or to sustain them, should He deem it more honorable, more glorious for them to suffer a light affliction for the short time they are on the earth so that for eternity they may be revealed in glory. Jesus is still on the mount. He is still in our midst. People come, whether they know it or not, to hear Him and to be healed by Him. If they are taught... It must be by Jesus as His Spirit opens their ears to hear what He has to say. If they are touched, it must be by Jesus as sufficient power goes out from Him, often so that they may patiently endure their sufferings with an inexpressible joy. Let's pray together. Lord, we look back now on your choosing of these 12. 
And we see in retrospect, Lord, that it really was plan E. It was God's eternal plan. It goes on generation by generation as the gospel is preached. And Lord, it's the perfect plan to reveal that the power and the ability must come from above. They must come from you, that we must remain humble and dependent upon your Holy Spirit. We have nothing to commend ourselves, Lord. If we ever think that it's our ability, that it's our talent, that it's our training, that it's our skill, Lord, I pray that you would humble us and return us to a place where we understand that the gospel power comes as we simply yield ourselves to you. Lord, sometimes I think we have too much and think too highly of ourselves for you to work as powerfully as you would desire. That being the case, Lord, we just leave that with you. Remind us, remind us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you, to not look on the outward appearance as man would look, but on the heart. And Lord, if there's maybe one thing that we take from this morning, that we would know in our hearts that we're the kind of Christian that would rather spend all night in prayer with you. Maybe we haven't done it, Lord, but is it there in our hearts? Is that desire there? I pray that it would be again, Lord, that we would remember our first love and return to it. You would be the most important person, the most important pursuit of our lives, that you would put everything else into perspective. We're here to serve you, Lord, that's true. But we're really here just to have fellowship with you. And we want to do that more and more and more. May we wait upon you, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. We can stand together as we dismiss. Some of our deacons will be down front. They'd love to pray with you this morning. I mean that. They really, 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 really enjoy uh, sharing with you and praying with you. I hope that you can come tonight and be with us at our worship service uh, and uh, share communion with us and pray and be prayed for and just worship the Lord in that way. Uh, we're looking forward to it. May God bless and keep you as you seek to spend time with Him this week. Amen. Jesus.
risen and exalted. Risen and exalted one, Jesus. Your name is like honey on my lips. Your spirit like water to my soul. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Jesus, I love you.